my dad works in B2B marketing, but I never really knew what that meant. Then one day, my dad came by my school for career day and told everyone in my class he was a big MQL man. Then he just kept saying things like, the more MQLs, the better, over and over. My friends still laugh at me to this day. I think it means marketing qualified lead. One thing's for sure. I'll be known as the MQL man's kid for the rest of my days. Why couldn't you just be a fireman or a lawyer? Why? You ruined my life, Dad. Not everyone gets B2B, but LinkedIn has the people who do. And with ads on LinkedIn, you'll be able to reach people based on job title, industry, likelihood to buy, and more. Start converting your B2B audience into high-quality leads today. We'll even give you $100 credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash customer to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash customer. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be, to be. This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money so you can make more. Most corporate credit cards offer points as incentives, but those points amount to less than their worth in real cash value. Ramp's business cards offer you cash back, real money in your pocket. Plus, you control who spends what with each vendor. And Ramp software collects and verifies receipts automatically, which means you'll stop wasteful spending and close your books in hours instead of days. Businesses that use Ramp add up to 5% to their bottom line the first year. If you're a decision maker, adding Ramp could be one of the best decisions you've ever made. And now get $250 when you join Ramp for free. Just go to ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P dot com slash easy. Currents issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC terms and conditions apply. It's brand new season two. I'm Marissa Thalberg. And I'm Stephen Wolf Bededa. And we're excited to be back having bigger, bolder, and always real conversations. Straight from the C-suite front lines of marketing, media, and more. We have great friends joining from people you may know, like Wilmer Valderrama and Bobby Burke. And people you'll want to know. So grab a coffee or, hey, even an Aperol Spritz and come join us on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Listen to brand new on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Oh, hi, I'm Rachel Zoe, and my podcast, Climbing in Heels, is back and better than ever. You might know me from the Rachel Zoe Project, or perhaps from my work as a celebrity stylist. And guess what? I'm still just as obsessed with all things fashion, beauty, and business. Climbing in Heels is all about celebrating the stories of extraordinary women, and this season is here to bring you a weekly dose of glamour, inspiration, and fun. Listen to Climbing in Heels every Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, Brent Johnson, Santiago Capital on Twitter. Uh, I always love sitting down, hanging out with you and catching up, and I'm excited what we have to talk about today. So let's just get right into it. If you want to get to a philosophical level, but even just like a realistic level, like the whole world is based off of energy, right? Like the whole world right. is based off of energy. And um, it seems like through disastrous policy decisions over the last decade of shutting down energy throughout Europe and, and even the United States um, and through inflationary policies, we've kind of created this perfect storm. Um, and it seems that it's put a lot of pressure onto um, the sovereigns, if you will, right? So now you have Germany, for example, that's been a net exporter, but now they're a net importer. Their energy costs are so high. Now they're having to shut their manufacturing down, uh, which is bad. That's long-term effects of deindustrialization. But they're also now, it looks like a lot of nations are being forced to dump maybe U.S. treasuries to get the money to bring in the energy um, right. And at the same time, it looks like the Fed is trying to fight inflation, which most of inflation is being caused by energy. So it seems like this energy, right. it, it seems like energy and this inflationary system is like at the center, the epicenter of this entire storm the world is is kind of facing right now. I mean, it's it's the end of this debt cycle, potentially the sovereign long term debt cycle. But then you have yep. energy that's maybe the pen pricking the bubble. How would yep. you how would you look at that? No, I, I think there. I think that's absolutely right. Like energy is a huge part of what's going on now, uh, for a couple reasons. Um, number one, you know, anybody who's seen Dune, right, knows that the spice must flow, right. And in many ways, you know, oil is the spice that keeps the global economy running. So, 
to think that we could talk about all these big macro events that are going on and that somehow energy wasn't a part of it would be kind of silly. Right. Um, so I think whether it's a, a byproduct of everything else that's going on or if that's the cause, I, I, I don't really know, but I, I know it's a huge factor. Um, and to your point, you know, these, these uh, I'll use the word disastrous, people can use whatever your word that they want, these, these, these kind of disastrous uh, energy policies and green mandates um, that have been put in place before we were ready to have any kind of a transition is kind of exacerbating it, right? And so, and, and of course, the way I always come at it, I, I always come at it from the big picture down, and, I, and you know my focus is on currencies. It's important to, to understand that there's a couple dynamics that, that affect currencies that, that, are, that are directly a tied, that are directly tied to energy, right? Um, and then this plays into geopolitics and military issues that are going on with Russia and China and Ukraine and Europe, right? So it, it's all kind of interconnected. It's hard to it's hard to talk about just oil without seeping into these other areas. But, yeah, you can't. But you know, the, obviously, the, the the big issue with oil and and with many other commodities is that they're priced and typically traded in dollars. And you know, whether you're doing business in the United States, that's typically the case. That's changing a bit on the edges, but by and large, the world still trades on dollars and energy trade around the world takes place in dollars. Part of the issue that's happening now is that over the last, let's just call it 10 years, um, the U.S. has become more self-sufficient in energy terms. Now, again, I think there was a couple of years where we were actually a net exporter. I think in the last year, we're kind of maybe a mar back to being a marginal net importer. Um, it kind of depends on whether shale's currently pumping or not, but, but this is important for a couple of reasons, because as the U.S. becomes more energy self-sufficient and is not it does not need to buy oil from the Middle East or Venezuela or Russia or wherever it is, um, that that not only helps their domestic industry, but it also ends up meaning that less dollars are getting distributed outside the United States, right? For years and years and years, we were a huge net oil importer. So we would, the oil would come in and the dollars would go out. And then those dollars would exist in the Euro dollar market and it would provide liquidity for the Euro dollar market. But as the US has become more energy self-sufficient, they don't have to export dollars for as many imports of energy as they used to. And so, but but a big part of it is that a lot of the US dollar debt that exists in the Euro dollar market was extended or put in place, however you wanna think about that, while the US was exporting a lot of dollars. So you have a situation where a lot of credit was extended and a lot of debt was taken on when there was a lot of liquidity. But now moving forward, due to the fact that we're exporting fewer dollars and that the U.S. is tightening monetary policy. It just means that there's less dollars circulating, not just in the United States, but especially in the euro dollar market. And so it, the, the, then it just becomes this vicious cycle. And, you know, we've talked about this several times. Right. But now you have a situation where um, due to these um, energy policies, due to the military conflicts and geopolitic political conflicts that are going on and due to um, you know, the tightening of the money supply in the United States, you've already got um, oil rising in all terms, uh, but even more so in other country terms, right? So if you think about the euro and the yen or, or even the yuan, um, you know, their currencies are down in the, in, in the UK, their, their currencies are down anywhere from five to 20% this year. Right. Well, if oil is at you know ninety bucks or whatever, eighty eight bucks or whatever it is today, and and that and oil prices are going higher, and then your currency is losing value versus the dollar, that's another ten or twenty percent kicker on top of it. And then you get into the supply chain issues where energy could gap up even higher. You know, you've kind of got this perfect storm for um, you know chaos, really, yeah. <laughs> lack of a better word. So, but but in short, I think I think oil and energy is a huge huge part of this. And energy is in many ways driving the geopolitical conflicts right now, right? Um, between Russia and Ukraine or and you know, Europe and Russia. 
Yeah, you can't you can't really uh, th- these are very sticky situations or, or con- interconnected situations. So you can't really look at one without the other. Now, right. um, it seems that, you know, this whole war with Russia is really being, uh, uh, you know, who knows where it started or whatever. But I mean, it's really about yeah. the energy right now. Right. And it seems like uh, Putin has come out and said that uh, the uh, what do you say? The economies of fake imaginary wealth are being inevitably replaced by the economies of real assets or whatever right and i think he's talking yeah. about the fake fiat system is being replaced with uh real commodities and he said uh what he was like trolling he's like um what are you gonna do heat your homes with social media companies or he said something to that effect you know um but i mean he, he has some very good points i mean you know i i think putin is one of the smarter world leaders that there is and and you know i think to a certain extent he's played his cards pretty well I don't necessarily think he's a 3D chess genius, but, um, you know, you can't credit him or you can't discredit him for the moves he's made so far. Yeah. So if, you know, we have this situation going on, to your point, um, gold priced in euros or yen is way is a way bigger problem than it is priced in dollars. Um, so I was saying kind of kind of like back to this this war, if the Fed's trying to fight inflation, um, part of keeping the dollar propped up or making the dollar stronger, then it helps offset that inflation that we're seeing versus other nations that are forced to buy um, oil with with a devalued currency but on top of it then they're being forced well not maybe being forced but like japan is like trying to maybe prop up their currencies at the same time as they're having to import oil at these crazy levels right so they're down to at at the same time that they're doing yield curve control on their bonds which so they're 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 they have a bunch of cross currents going at the bank of japan here yeah so you're obviously the dollar milkshake guy. The theory is that the dollar will suck up the liquidity from all the other currencies and be the last one standing. We're definitely witnessing that plane, but this is kind of uh, all part of that, right? So as Japan is, is forced to defend it, I mean, they're going to continue to devalue, yeah. right? So my, so, so my thesis has always been that whether the Fed wants it or not, ultimately the dollar will get away from them to the upside. And, and the reason I say get away from them is I think currently they want a stronger dollar and we should probably talk about that. But even I think that before this is all said and done, um, the dollar will go higher than they want it to go. And it doesn't mean it's gonna go in a straight line and there will no doubt be periods of dollar weakness along the way. But you know, the, the, while even though the Fed might want a stronger dollar in the short term, they don't want a, a, a dollar that's rising so fast that it's out of control because that will literally wreck the entire monetary system. You know, the monetary system wasn't set up for a, for a, for a continually increasing dollar. It, it will literally cause the system to crash. So while they may want the dollar higher in the short term, I don't think they want it significantly higher in the long term. But ultimately, I think that will happen. Now, in the short term, I think that that they actually do want a stronger dollar because a stronger dollar right now accomplishes several things. And I think some of these things they would admit to and some of them I think they would not admit to and some others they may vehemently deny even though really they, they, they do want it. Um, but you know, right now, for better or for worse, even though they want inflation a small amount of inflation over time that allows them to inflate away the debt. They don't want double digit inflation year over year. And the reason they don't want that high of inflation year over year is because that is very politically hard to handle. Mm-hmm. Um, it causes too much stress in the, in the, in the local economy. It causes citizens to push back on business leaders, government leaders, officials, et cetera, et cetera. Right. So, the government would love to get three or four. They say their their target is two. I think they would love three or four percent inflation for you know five or ten years, and they inflate twenty five to fifty percent of the debt away. I think they would absolutely love that. The problem is, is it's very hard to get three or four con- percent consistent inflation. What yeah. you what you get is this you know very lumpy you know crazy inflation that we've had over the last uh, call it year or two years, and so because of the political pushback that they're getting and because of um, what's going on in the global economy with all this inflation, they are trying to dial it back down. Uh, not the least of which is their reputation, right? They, they don't want to blow up their reputation and they're very embarrassed. The Fed, I'm talking about the Fed's yeah. very embarrassed 
uh, that inflation came in so high and they and they were they were wrong on the transitory nation, nature of it. And so they want to get it back down for a few reasons. They want to get it back down in order to restore their reputation, but they also want to get it back down so that you know the, the pushback economically and politically um, is less. Um, and the way that they're trying to do that is by killing demand, right? They don't really have control over the supply side of the equation, but they think they have control over the demand side of the equation. And if you tighten monetary supply, which means you know, you're taking liquidity out of the system, either through uh, open market operations of the Fed or through raising interest rates, tighter monetary supply should lead to less growth and it should you know, push demand down. And so they're let's just make, every, let's just make everybody broke and then nobody buys anything. Right. Well, I mean, here's here's the funny thing, Mark. Well, it's not funny. It's actually tragic. But, you know, I, I think, again, for better, or for worse, I think Powell has been about as clear as clear a speaking central banker as I've ever heard. All year he has come out and said, we need to get inflation under control. It's our primary concern. We're going to raise rates. And whenever the market has misinterpreted him, he's come out a few days later, or a few weeks later and said, hey, 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 I want to be clear. You guys aren't listening to me. I'm going to raise rates and we are going to have some pain. And that means that people are going to have to get paid less. They're going to have to lose their jobs and house prices are going to have to come down. And even though those are bad things, that will be less bad than letting inflation run hot. I mean, he's been very, very clear about it. Now, you might think he's lying. You might think that he's wrong. You might think he's misguided. That's fine, but there's really no confusion in what his words are saying. And so, you know, and so I think that raising rates and getting the dollar stronger is what they are trying to do in order to get inflation down. Now, ironically, or unironically, depending on I guess where you're sitting, is that by trying to tampen down inflation domestically by raising the dollar they're actually exacerbating inflation overseas. And what I mean by that is, is if the dollar is going up 10 or 15%, that means other currencies are going down 10 or 15%, right? And so if we already have high levels of inflation in the US and now those same goods are even more expensive in Euro terms or yen terms or Australian dollar terms or whatever it is, um, you know, and it's causing those other countries to support their currencies because their currencies are losing value too much. And those other countries, in addition to trying to support their currencies, they're also trying to support their bond markets um, through some form of QE. You get into a situation where you're exacerbating these, the, the same issues that the Fed is fighting domestically are being exacerbated outside the United States. And I think we've talked about this before, but th this whole situation, um, there's a name for it. It's called Triffin's Dilemma. And Triffin was an economist back in the 60s, and he coined this term, and he said, if an individual country's currency is used as a domestic currency and simultaneously used as the global currency, at some point along the way, it will come into con the needs of the domestic economy will come into conflict with the needs of the global economy. And, and that's literally right exactly where we're at. Right. Um, you know, the rest of the world, because it trades in dollars and because the dollar is higher, their local currencies are worth less. It's making their funding costs higher. It's causing their economies to slow. And it's just a real mess, right? And so, you know, we're right in the heart of this Triffin's dilemma where the U.S. needs one thing and the global economy needs the other. And the Fed and the other central banks around the world are trying to thread this very, very small needle hole. Yeah, the proverbial soft landing, right? Um, yeah, I was saying how I yeah. think that's just such a horrible analogy where you kind of think yeah. that like they're this fighter jet with a million controls, uh, but really yeah. it's like a hot air balloon, right? <laughs> All they can really yeah, do the, is like the, let the, hot air the, in the, and hot the, air out. The soft landing is when you're both you and your friend are both thrown out of a third story window. He hits the ground and you land on him. So yeah. for you, it's a little softer. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, that, that's essentially what it is. Um, you know, and then I, there, there's one other part of this that I didn't mention yet, and I, I don't remember if we've talked about this before or not. We probably have. Um, I put, I personally believe that there's another thing that's going on here that, while not the direct reason that they're raising rates, is a is a byproduct that they don't mind, and that is that I think that part of the reason that they raise rates is 
it, at least in the short term, now we can probably have a big argument of how this ends up in the long run, but in the short term, it cements the United States position as the on, on the top of the mountain. And what I mean by that is, if the whole world is slowing down economically and having these, these, uh, these problems, but the U.S. is in a relatively better place, and by raising rates in the U.S., because that's what the U.S. needs, but by not, but by you know, but also hurting other countries in the process. Even if everybody's going down, those other countries are coming under more pressure than the United States is. So on a relative basis, the U.S. is securing its spot on top of the mountain. The the other part that it does is I think that it it it, it will force countries to choose sides. And what I mean by that is, I, I think we can probably all agree that, you know, whereas for the last 20 or 30 years, the whole world was kind of moving towards one globalized economy right. and, you know, peaceful, you know, one world, you know, over the last couple of years that that started to fracture. And now we're, we're going away from globalization more towards deglobalization. And we're going to have, rather than have one supply chain, we're going to have two or multiple supply chains. Countries are going to have to try to become more self-sufficient rather than relying on others. And in that whole, you know, in that whole uh, dynamic, there's, you know, East versus West, China versus the United States, Russia versus the United States, Russia versus Europe. So there's all these geopolitical, um, you know, uh, issues as well. And I think by putting countries that are maybe on the margin, you know, they're not quite sure whether they would be better off to go with the East or the West or with the U.S. or not with the U.S., if, if the U.S. can put them in a vulnerable spot, um, it could then force them or try to force them or, or at least, you know, manipulate that country um, into joining the U.S. And, you know, maybe the U.S. has something like, you know, we will help you out with your funding needs or we'll give you a swap line or we'll help you on some trade deals, give you a break on some prices. But in, in exchange, we're going to need you to vote with us at the UN on this thing, or we're going to need you to sign this trade agreement or, or whatever it is. But yeah. I think going forward, where in the past we've, you know, handed out swap lines or, you know, been more willing to use dollar policy to help the global economy, I think now we're going to be more focused on using the dollar to help the U.S. specifically and then helping our friends where, where um where we think it's most uh, advantageous to do so. Yeah, no, I agree with that 100%. I think um, what's interesting, though, is back to, as I said, uh, Putin's comment before about the, um, the fake economy versus the real economy. If you're a third world nation that you desperately need whatever commodity, wheat or you yeah. know, energy inputs or whatever, uh, what is the U.S. going to offer you? Dollars? That doesn't solve your problem, right? Because if a dollar is only yeah. a medium of exchange, what I need is the, the, the commodities. I need the inputs. So Russia says, hey, here's the inputs. And, and the U.S. says, well, here's the dollars. Like, which one are you? Like, you're gonna, you need the inputs, right? And so that, that kind of creates a Well, I think, there's a, I think it's a little bit of both. So I, I understand the point you're making. And from an energy basis and maybe like a fertilizer basis and a lot of these other resources, I totally get you. And, and I think we're in agreement there. Where I think that maybe that view is a little bit overplayed is again if everybody goes to this right if, if everybody now goes to self-sufficiency and you know no more trading and you know only trading with your friends i think the u.s is probably on an overall basis the most self-sufficient country in the world oh, 100%. and while we might not yeah. manufacture ipads and tractors and all that kind of stuff we do manufacture more food in you know the world than, in the u.s than anywhere else in the world yeah. And if we get into this energy crisis that then translates into a food crisis, right? I think the, the food that we create here uh, will be pretty valuable and will be in, in need. And that itself could be a bargaining tool. Yeah. Um, but but I, I do get your point. And, and this is what makes it so interesting, right? Um, I, I think to a certain extent, we both agree that the end of fiat or, or the or the what's the right way? The, the end of the monetary system as we know it is probably on the horizon. Um, and whether that is successful or not successful, I think the transition or the lack of transition will probably be, be chaotic. Yeah. The, and, the question um, is how, how far can they yeah. keep kicking the can? But we know at some point the, right. can, the can hits Absolutely. the wall. And, and Absolutely. Uh, we, I, I don't know about you, but I've thought, like a lot of other people thought, that it would have come already, <laughs> but they continue oh, yeah. to pull more magic tricks out, so then you have to Guilty. Wonder, yeah. Guilty. How many well, more and tricks? That, to be honest, that, that's what, I mean, 
I would have guessed this would have happened 10 years ago, yeah. you know, between 10, 2011 and after, after everything we went through in the global financial crisis, I thought we would have another crisis by 2011 and 2014 at the end, at the, at the forest, right? So did and I. we did start to have a crisis in the Eurozone in 2011 or 12, but you know, Mario Draghi kicked that can down the road better than anybody I've ever seen. And so here we are, and it's kind of how these big, big, you know, macro trends, they, they always take longer than you think that they're going to take. And, you know, and that's why I've started saying, that, you know, I mean, this could last another three years, maybe it lasts another five years, 10 years. I don't really know. But what I do think, and I, I think you agree, is that, you know, we not only are we coming up on the cans in the road, but there's more than one can, right? Yeah, yeah. We've, we, we, we've not only kicked economic problems down the road, we've kicked social problems down yeah. the road, we've kicked political problems down the road, we've kicked uh, geopolitical problems down the road. And the other thing is, it's not just us. Like, you know, Europe's kicked all these cans down the road and uh, China's kicked all these cans in Japan and Australia. You know, all of these countries have kicked all these cans down the road. And now the whole I feel like the whole world is converging on this intersection. And this intersection is just filled with cans. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, and, you know, it's going to be very hard to clear all those cans out of the way without somebody getting hurt. And, you know, it, it just I don't know what will happen. I just don't think it'll be smooth. Yeah. And, and so that's kind of where I come down. I think the U.S. still has the longest road <laughs> ahead of us, uh, yeah. you know, but yeah. I think uh, to the to the point you were making, I would agree with. I think, uh, you know, we go into a multipolar world. We probably have three or four kind of economic trade zones. The U.S. is more isolated, probably just maybe northern hemisphere, northern southern hemisphere, kind of thing like that. But I want to jump back to what you were talking about with the maybe the Fed kind of fighting back, weaponizing the dollar kind of a thing. Yeah. Um, I know I remember in Miami, we were hanging out by the pool that day and we were kind of talking about that topic specifically. Yeah. But I thought I'd seen you on Twitter also saying that you don't think the Fed, uh, anyone who thinks the Fed needs to defend the dollar doesn't understand it or something to something that something to that effect. Yeah. Right. So like the Fed, what do you, you were kind of like taking the position like, what do you mean the Fed needs to protect the dollar? The Fed doesn't have to protect anything. Um, but now you're saying the Fed might be actually trying to fight back. Well, so. Maybe we have a definition of terms problem, right? Um, I, I view what the Fed is doing as offense. I don't view it as defense. Got it. Right? When when an emerging market's currency is plummeting and they raise rates in order to save it from falling to zero, you know, and to, to attract capital, to me that is defending a currency. But if you're if you're already the strongest currency and you continue to raise rates even though money is already flowing into your currency, to me, to me, that's you walking around to these other countries and cutting their heads off with a sword. Right. That's not you standing behind your shield, ducking down, hoping that you don't get mauled, yeah. right? And so- From a position I, of strength, believe, not a position of weakness. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Now, could you say that they're using their offensive weapon in order to defend their overall position? Yeah, I suppose you could, sure. you know, if you were looking at it from that perspective, I, I, I can see where you're coming from. Um, but, you know, to me, this is not an accident. To me, this is, not an um, to me, this is, is, is being deliberately done. Well, I know Powell is doing it deliberately in order to crush inflation. I mean, he has very clearly said that. Yeah. And, you know, I, I don't I think that's about the only tool he has to try and crush inflation. You know, the the, the Fed has no control over supply chains. Right. So I do believe him when he says that, but I also believe there's these other factors that they probably would not admit that they also don't mind that are happening. Yeah. Now, um, talking about this fighting back or this war, um, obviously we're seeing it happen all over the world. Let's talk about a couple uh, ones here. So um, Trump started an economic war. I've often said that World War Three is probably over economic and information. It's like uh, more than a sure. kinetic war, hot war. At least maybe I'm just I'm optimistic and hopeful. But uh, maybe Trump started this economic war with China with these with these tariffs, right? It was like a trade war, and then we yeah. he started he yeah. started attacking their tech with Huawei and even trying to yep. ban TikTok. The Biden administration just kept those right in place which is surprising. I thought the Biden and his son were in the back pocket of the Chinese, but either way, they seem to keep that in place. Yeah. And now, uh, was it last week, like Biden, or the Biden administration, like dropped the hammer on China with the whole chip yeah. thing. I mean, just I'm out of you, Well, 
And then there was something subsequent to that as well. But yeah, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt, but, but yeah, I agree with you. So just like out of nowhere, it's like, hey, by next week, any American is going to lose their citizenship if they don't come back to the United States. And they're just cut off completely. I mean, that seems like this big escalation in this economic yeah. war. What, what was the other thing that led to that, you think? Well, so the other thing that happened was when was I think this was on Monday. Um, a lot of people didn't see it and it didn't get much press coverage. But the Department of Justice came out and had a big press conference with, uh, you know, the attorney general, the attorney general of New York, uh, all these different people, you know, six or seven people at this press conference. And they arrested, I can't remember if it was five or eight Chinese nationals and, and for spying in the United States. And and typically when something like this happens or, or, or historically when something like this has happened, the U.S. has kind of treated it with kid gloves. They would often say, you know, they, they would never say it was the Chinese government. It would, they, they would say it was someone from China, but maybe they right. were acting on their own or, or whatever it is. But they were they not only didn't use kid gloves, but they went out of their way at this press conference to make it very clear that this was a Chinese government operation mm. and that China's government was trying to influence political and legal decisions in the United States. So to me, that was just another signal that you know, the, the gloves are kind of off, or if they're not off, they're, they're being rapidly pulled off, right? And it, because I just, you just haven't typically seen it be that, that, that overt. Um, and considering all that's going on in the world, I guess it's, it's, it's not shocking. You know, be, before I forget, I should say, you touched on Trump started this kind of this economic war with China. I would, I would say this, and I, I know because Trump is such a hot button issue for many people, I hope that you can put whatever personal feelings yeah. you have for Trump aside. Yeah. If you just focus on two things, if you focus on the fact that he very clearly pointed out that our relationship with China was perhaps not quite as friendly or should not be quite as friendly as everybody else um, thought it should be and that they were in many ways taking advantage of our relationship. I think he was the first one to very publicly declare that without worrying about the political ramifications of doing so. Yeah. Um, and, and he did it in a very clever way, I thought. He did it in a way that he, he said, listen, I like Z. I think Z's, re Z's really smart. If I was him, I would probably do the same thing. You know, he's been out negotiating our guys. So he did it. He did it in a way that wasn't necessarily attacking China, but he was just showing weakness in America. But regardless of, of how you view that, you know, the, that was the beginning of, of bringing all this stuff to the fore and, and, and showing that it's not, it has been somewhat of a, a one-way relationship that needs to be addressed. Um, so so I, I think that's pretty interesting. Um, the other thing that I was going to say was that um, I think uh, also with, oh shit, you know what, now I can't remember this other point I was going to say. It was, some, it was something else related to China, but... Uh, I, I think the fact that he's brought it forward and then the fact that that Biden didn't just, like you said, turn around and squash it. And, and it, oh, I know what I was going to say. It has to do with with this chips thing. Right. Yeah. Like this. The point here is that, you know, Trump made the point that, listen, we're still America. You know, we still have a lot of things that we can do. We don't just have to back down to China and do whatever China wants. And so part of my thesis has been that despite all the mistakes we've made and despite the fact that we maybe are not held in as great of esteem as we used to be, that we are still a, a global power and there are still a few tricks up our sleeve that we can use. And to your point, this thing with the chips and, you know, I thought that was a pretty clever way, you know, for the U.S. to pull some of its own tricks. You know, to me, that's as much as a 3D chess move as anything else that's happened, right? Now, does it have some back blow blowback on the U.S.? Yeah, potentially. Sure. But it, you know, if all these workers leave China, that that's not exactly great for China either, right? So to me, it's it's just another way that you know the global hegemon is showing that you know what we may not be quite as strong as we used to be, but we're also not just going to roll over and walk away. Yeah. The one benefit that the U.S. has, well, there's many. Um, but one big one is that um, the U.S. could, we don't make the iPads here, but we could. We design them here, yeah. right? Uh, right? We don't make all the chips here, but we design 85% of them, right? right. Uh, we, so we could make all that stuff here if we wanted because we design it. But, mo but most importantly, we 
are the consumers. We buy it. Right. All. So our companies right. could make it and we could buy it where China can keep making it. But who's going to buy it? <laughs> I'm so glad I'm so glad you brought this up and I didn't have to bring this up because a lot of times when I bring this up, people say, oh, no, the middle class in China is growing very fast no. and they're going to overtake us. And, you know, maybe. But as of right now, that's not the case. And again, to your point, our consumer class or consumer society, many people see it as a negative, And I understand those arguments, but it is also that consumer society is the engine that help, or it's the, or it's the lubrication that runs the engine of the world right yeah. if you don't have a market to sell into that doesn't help you to, to to make all these products um and so on a relative basis the us you know the, it, again we don't have to have all these ipads um you have to have food right so yeah. while you don't have to have an ipad you probably do need to eat and if it really got down to brass tacks I think we could probably feed ourselves better than anywhere else in the world. Oh yeah, we have more arable land in the United States and river and water than anybody. Um, I yeah. was just—I was telling you—I was just down in Mexico, and um, they don't have a consumer market there, and so because of that, there's right. no opportunity. And uh, there's this town called Puerto Escondido that we've been going to for years, and this one section of town has gotten really—you know—all these digital nomads have come in, a lot of Europeans come there, and the locals aren't super happy because now it's gotten all touristed out, and there's a lot of people. But I was telling my daughters, just kind of trying to explain this to them, I said, "But look at now all these businesses, restaurants, shops that have opened up. Hundreds or even thousands of people are now employed, and now they're making money. They can go spend money, and so." Uh, yeah, you need the consumerism, otherwise there's no opportunity. Uh, yep, yep. Uh, now let's let's exactly. jump over to another uh, war, and that's now with uh, Saudi. And I think this one's even bigger because to the point we were making earlier with the <laughs> it's, oil, it's fascinating. oil's been it's priced in dollars. And um, yep. uh, we, we can speculate about what's going on. Uh, potentially, it seems like uh, Biden went over there to beg for oil. They said no. They thought they had this backdoor deal that wasn't there and saudi has come out two things publicly they said one was that uh you're manipulating the market by these spr reserve releases you're manipulating the market and so we'll just cut production we can go harder than you but then their energy secretary came out and said uh uh something to the effect of uh it's not going to be good for you without reserves this winter or something to that effect. Right. Um, and then yeah. there, so, uh, the, the president, I believe of South Africa, which is the S in the BRICS, said that yeah. Saudi is going to join the BRICS. Uh, we can yeah. speculate about that, but it looks like it's, there's a good probability that could happen. What would be the implications to the dollar if that were to happen? So look, I think <laughs> what would, I think the headline of that, let's say that if Saudi Arabia came out and said, we are joining the BRICS and we are no longer selling our product in dollars, my guess is just the headline of it would probably make the dollar initially fall, potentially. Although that would also be seen as a potentially an act of war, which could send the dollar much higher. But but the point I'll make is, is if 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 they stop selling oil in dollars, that means there's even less trade taking place in dollars than there was before. And I already explained the fact that we're not importing as much as we used to, it means we're sending less dollars out. If they're not even selling oil in dollars anymore, then there's even less dollars circulating. But all of that dollar debt and all that dollar credit that's been extended in the Euro dollar market still exists. So now you've got an even tougher time servicing all that and paying for all that. Now, I know many people will say, yeah, but now they don't, uh, they don't have to pay those debts anymore, so they'll just default. Okay, that's fine, but here's the issue, is those dollar debts outside the United States are also dollar assets out the United States. In that situation, you're not defaulting on the United States. You're defaulting on whoever you did business with outside the United States that, at, that, that invoiced it in dollars. Like the Belt and so Road Initiative? So it's Turkey like defaulting to France, and it's Japan defaulting to Brazil. And it's, you know, Saudi Arabia defaulting to or whoever it is, right? Yeah. And can, can, can you start trading in gold or can you start bartering and stuff? Sure, you can, but it will not be a, it will not be a um, easy or, or smooth or efficient process. So, and, and while that would certainly, if they stopped selling dollars or so oil in dollars, 
of course, in the long-term overall picture, that would probably be bad for, and, and they were able to maintain that, right? That would probably be bad for the dollar. But I actually believe that the, the, that the chaos that that would cause on a global basis would cause the dollar to go higher, at least in the medium term, until it, all those kinks and um, intricacies and efficiencies were worked out. When you say um, it would I know be that's bad. an unpopular opinion, but that's what I think. When you say it would be bad for the dollar, what does that mean? What would bad be? Well, I mean, part of the reason that the dollar enjoys um, its status in the world is it's the biggest network in the world, right? The reason everybody uses dollars is because everybody uses dollars, right? right? Just like the reason network. everybody uses Twitter is because everybody uses Twitter. Yeah. Everybody uses Facebook because everybody uses Facebook. And even though... You know, there's been competing sites and platforms that have popped up and tried to draw people away from Twitter and Facebook. You know, yeah, a few people go over there and it's happening at the margins, but Twitter and Facebook still dominate. Yep. It's kind of the same thing here. You know, the dollar dominates global trade. And yeah, there's a few countries that trade amongst themselves in another currency, but those platforms aren't nearly as big as the Facebook and the Twitters. Right. And but but if everybody you know, or if, you know, if a big portion of people leave Facebook and go somewhere else, you know, it starts to hurt. And if, and if they don't come back, you know, it will over time mean that Facebook will fail. And so if everybody left the dollar over time, it would mean the dollar would fail. But, and, and what does that mean? The dollar just continues to lose purchasing power? Yeah, I think it would just continue to lose purchasing power. Um, and, and, it would maybe, and it would maybe no longer be the global reserve currency, right? And therefore... You know, for the for the most part, Americans don't have to think in two currencies, right? They don't have. To, we've grown up just thinking about the dollar because, you know, we buy whatever we need in dollars. But yeah. people all over the world grow up thinking in two different currency terms: their local currency terms and dollar terms, because yeah. that's what they need to operate. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, we, a lot of people have called having the global reserve currency the exorbitant privilege for that exact reason. You can print money in order to go buy oil or these goods and these and that, that, that's called the exorbitant privilege you know now in the last few years there's been come up to saying yeah but it has long-term detriments too so it's you know it's an exorbitant burden um you know it's a double-edged sword but you know i one of the analogies i've used is having the global reserve currency is kind of like being a vampire right yeah there's downsides but the flip side is that you're really strong and nobody can kill you and you can run around and just you know <laughs> yeah, pretty much do whatever you want. And so, um, you know, maybe this would be if everybody left the dollar or if a big portion of people left the dollar, that would be, you know, the rest of the world driving a stake through the vampire's heart. Yeah. You know, and I, I, they might eventually get him and kill the vampire. But my guess is that he'll kill a few people along the way before that happens. Yeah. Now, when we talk about um, all these currencies losing value, um, you know, the euro, the yen down 20 percent, the Turk, you mentioned Turkey, the Turkish lira is down 80, I don't know, 80 to 90 percent over the last five years to the U.S. Yeah. dollar. Right. So if you look at the Turkish lira over five years, it's down whatever it is at this point, 80 to 90 percent. Um, yep. Other currencies are down, you know, whatever amounts they're down. Argentina is down more probably. Uh, but. It, that's all compared to the dollar. So you, you, your theory, yeah. the milkshake theory, is always the dollar is getting stronger, which it is, right? Um, yeah. But it's getting stronger to other currencies. But if we look at the same five-year period, the dollar's down 68% to the S&P 500. It's yeah. down 48% to median real estate since January of 2020. So yeah. uh, the dollar is getting stronger to currencies, but it's also getting weaker to assets at the same time. How do you think? Well, about and that's that? and that's you know, that is kind of the theory. Now, I've, I've, the dollar milkshake theory has never said you should just buy dollars, leave it in cash, and just sit there and buy everything when it's really cheap, right? The, the theory has always been that we will ultimately get into a situation where the U.S. dollar and U.S. dollar denominated assets rise versus the rest of the world. So, um, you know, I've always said that we'll get into a situation where we will have the dollar gold and the dow all rising together and i potentially u.s real estate too and um you know so, and, and that that is a situation where maybe everybody's printing maybe maybe the whole world's doing qe including the u.s 
but all of that money that's being printed comes into the United States. It goes into stocks, it goes into gold, it goes into houses, it goes into commercial real estate or land or whatever it is, right? And so you get this situation where equities are going higher, land is going higher, gold is going higher, the dollar is going higher. Um, but those, those assets are going higher versus the dollar, but the dollar is going higher versus all the other currencies. So, um, I mean, that, that's, that's ultimately what the milkshake is. I, I don't think people should just be sitting in cash. Yeah. So uh, just using the dollar as your unit of account, your measuring stick. Yeah, kind of. exactly. Exactly. And the U.S. market as your safe haven. Yeah. All yeah. right. Two, two more things I wanted to talk about. Uh, one, <laughs> uh, man, uh, you always see on Twitter people say, I can't believe this app is free. Um, I would imagine um, a lot of people love you and Luke going back and forth. Oh, yeah. Oh, it's yeah. great. It's great. Uh, I know it's friendly. Uh, what would you say that you disagree on? And not who's right or wrong, but what do you yeah. think is that main disagreement there? Well, the first thing I'll say <laughs> is that if for anybody who has anybody who's watching this and has seen Luke and I go back and forth on Twitter, Twitter, I think, sometimes loses context. And when Luke and I are going back and forth at each other, I guarantee you he's trying to zing me and I guarantee you I'm trying to zing him. <laughs> but what you don't see is maybe we're smiling behind the screen. You know, I, I'm not there like pounding the table saying I hate Luke and he's really stupid. No, and, I know. You know, he's a bad guy and that's why I'm responding. Right. And so if it comes across as mean on Twitter, I can absolutely guarantee you it's not mean behind the scenes. But I will also say that part of the reason that I have pushed back as hard as I have against his views is because I think there's a lot of people who will read his work and will say, wow, that's really interesting. That's really smart. I can see that playing out. And Luke says it in such a convincing way, in such a certain way that I think they, they, they then assign a higher probability of those things happening than I think deserve. And, I, and I've seen this with retail investors before where they have a hunch and they buy a bunch, right? Mm -hmm. And so the reason I've pushed back as hard as I have is I've said, oh, hold on a minute. These might be probabilities or they might be possibilities. They may even be probabilities, but what you're talking about is not necessarily a high probability. And so I don't think everybody should run out, sell all their dollars, put it all in something else, uh, because I don't want people to get hurt. And I, and I, part of what, the reason I've pushed, I think to a certain, and I don't, I would say this if Luke was here. And so if, if he disagrees with, if, if he hears this and he disagrees with this and he wants to tell me that I'm wrong, then I, I will absolutely accept that. But I, I tend to think that Luke talks about the way he thinks things should be or the way things could be. Whereas I try to take a more kind of real politic, hard nosed, this is what's actually going to happen point of view whether I like it or not. But, 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 so but what, but what think, is that though? Yeah. Is that, is that so, he okay. thinks, he so thinks, I, he I, thinks like yeah. hard assets, like gold energy and maybe Bitcoin are really yeah. going to move to the forefront and currencies are, are being Correct. replaced. But you think that that's not happening so fast. I, th I think that, I think that's not going to happen. I think, I think our system is in real trouble. I think the powers that be will do everything that they possibly can and use every tool and deceitful method to, to defend it. Right. So I don't think this movement to a non fiat hard asset system will be as easy or smooth and, or as likely or fast as, as I think he thinks. If that does happen, if I am wrong and that does happen, I think that the U.S. has a better portfolio of hard assets than any country in the world. Now, sure, there's a few others that have good portfolios as well. But if you're taking just hard assets and real goods and all of that stuff put together, I don't think I, I, if I had my choice out of all the countries, I would choose the United States sure. in that type of an environment. Sure. So even if he is correct on that, I don't think that necessarily a bad thing for the United States. Um, and then I think the other thing is that um, some of these geopolitical realignments that he has spoken about being possible, of course, anything's possible. But the idea that, that Europe was going to just give up on its decades old relationship with the United States and their defense uh, umbrella of NATO and all of these longstanding institutional relationships and side with Russia over the United States, to me, 
while maybe it made sense from an energy perspective, just wasn't going to happen. And so that's probably why I pushed back on stuff like that as, as hard as I do. I mean, th these, these things, these things that, that we're talking about changing, they may very well change. And I think we're in the type of an environment where those things can change, but they aren't gonna change without a lot of volatility. And when I say volatility, I don't just mean economically, I mean sure. economically, socially, militarily, all of these different things. To me, this is, this is the big, big game, right? And what I mean by that is, you know, we often, when we're talking about China and Russia and the United States and Europe, it's always chess versus checkers. And I, I, I think that is the completely wrong analogy. I literally think this is the Game of Thrones. I think this is, you know, this is all the big boys and girls are out there and they're fighting for the top spot. And I think they will use all the dirty tricks and you know methods that they have at their disposal to do that. Yeah. And so regardless of whether, and when I look back at the last 50 years, whenever there's been a crisis, the dollar's gotten stronger. I don't think it's different this time. So I think when we get into this crisis, I think that means the dollar rises. I don't think it means it falls. And so that's, I think that's, that's how I understand the difference. He might think differently and, you know, there, there's no guarantee I'm right on this, yeah. but I, I think he would say something similar. I think, um, uh, and this will go into the last last topic, but I think it goes into time frames. So yeah, lot, well, absolutely, no, no question. A lot of times no I question. see two people that completely disagree. At, at my at my at my conference, I had uh, Stephen Van Meter and Greg Foss there. One loves bonds, yeah. one hates bonds. But when you got them there yeah. together, they actually agreed more than they disagreed. Exactly, that's true. I was there for that. Yeah. I remember that. Yeah, yeah, you were there, right? And so it's like, yeah. well, Stephen's talking about for the short time frame. Greg's thinking of over a long time frame, right? So a lot of it's that. But I think um, so. Let's let's talk about that a little bit. So, well, you uh, know, just real before I forget, let me let me make this point because this kind of came up recently. Luke and I were talking back and forth, and again. I kind of hate talking to Luke when he's not here. I, I like to kind of always do it when the person's there, but I'm pretty sure that we would have a similar conversation if we were together. Is that, um, you know, the, the, the whole, you know, actually happening versus wanting it to happen, right? I, I, I think there's this, I think that there is this, and I'm not saying that this is for Luke, but I think when Luke writes this stuff that, you know, the US isn't potentially in trouble for these things, to me, there's this kind of this zeitgeist in the United States, and I call them the self-loathing Americans. And that's maybe a bad way to say it, but it's the people who are woke enough to realize that maybe we're not the best, you know, person or the best country in the world. And maybe we've kind of overplayed our role as the hegemon. And maybe we're actually the cause of a lot of these problems rather than the solver of a lot of these problems. And, you know, we've spent all this money. We can never pay it back. And there's almost this... There's this romantic version or, or idea that the U.S. needs to get what's coming to it, right? And so then when they when they see somebody write something or say something that sounds like it's going to be bad for the U.S., they want to latch onto that because that's what they think needs to happen from right. kind of this moral perspective. And um, I, and and as a result, I think people will often ascribe a higher probability to an, an event than than is actually warranted. Yeah. Um, and there was another point I was going to make on the end of that, and I can't remember what it is now. But anyway. I, I agree with you. I mean, I agree with all the all the no. stuff that we've talked about. And I think uh, um, to it, you know, America is hands down, no doubt about it, the best country in the world still today. Now, uh, the trajectory that we're on is disappointing, uh, but yeah. it's still America's t to lose. Uh, right. We have the land, we have the energy, we have the in industry, we have the creativity, we have the consumer base, we have like we have everything. Um, it's, our, it's ours to lose, um, and so um, you know, hopefully the trajectory changes. Um, but uh, so let's, let's talk about the time frame and base cases, and we'll kind of end it with that. Yeah. But um, yeah, uh, I you know I like yeah, that you so, talk. Yeah, I like that. I, you I, I think, yeah, and I, I think that, that the whole time frame is a thing. I think. I think Luke and I probably agree that ultimately the U.S. is going to pay for all these profligate, you know, endeavors. Um, nobody stays on top forever. Everything comes to an end. We all know that. Um, but the timing, I think, is much different. Um, I happen to think I, I think he thinks it comes much earlier. Um, I think it comes much later. And I think that if it does happen, um, it won't necessarily happen in the way he thinks it will happen. Well, I, I tend to think, 
I, I tend to think that the next system will be another fiat system. I think that, and my fear, this is my fear. <laughs> my fear is that, you know, we are going to have some kind of military conflict that will resolve this. And whoever is the winner of that military conflict will not necessarily see the world as a place that they want to treat very nicely. They may want to treat it the way they think is the best for them, right? And whether that's the U.S. or somebody else, I don't know. Um, but I, 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 I think that they would then institute a new, you know, fiat standard or fiat style system rather than going to some kind of a free market Bitcoin or gold or something else. I don't see somebody winning this big battle and then just handing over the power to somebody else. That, that very, very rarely happens. Let's let's back up just a little bit and then we'll come back to that. So yeah. uh, earlier you had said, you know, how far can they kick the can down the road? You thought it'd be 2011, 2014. Maybe there's another three, five, eight years. Like you don't know, right? So yeah. three, five, eight years. Um, yep. It seems like right now the Fed keeps saying we're going to crush inflation, crush inflation, raise rates, raise, raise, raise rates. But the markets are almost like calling their bluff because they like, no, like, look, you're all, like we know you're committed, mm -hmm. but if the yep. whole system seizes up, you're going to be forced to change. So will the markets yep. seize up before the Fed uh, gets inflation down? And so the markets are kind of calling their bluff. Uh, this can is coming to this proverbial end at some point, I think you kind of said the whole world's doing QE together and everything kind yeah. of melting up. So do you think this happens, you know, maybe the, the, the Fed hits that proverbial wall in the next 12 months, then over the next yeah, if three, I had three to, to I five had years, to, we QE melt yeah. up together? Yeah, so <laughs> I'll make a prediction. And the, here's the funny thing is a lot of people say you should never make predictions because, you know, you get the, you can never get the, get the oh, time. Just probabilities. Just probabilities. The thing is, I don't I don't the, the reason I don't mind making predictions is I don't mind being wrong. I mean, the idea I mean, our job is essentially to predict the future and then put assets in a way that's going to benefit from that. Right. I can't think of anything more arrogant than to think that you can predict the future with perfect accuracy. Sure. So if what I I'll say what I think is going to happen. And if it doesn't happen, that's going to be fine. I, I, I promise you I will get through it. But my I, my thoughts is that we will probably make a new low sometime in the first quarter of next year. And then after that, I think the Fed will pivot. And what 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 exactly the pivot means, whether they just slow hikes or stop hikes or go back to I, I don't know. Um, but I think a crisis will be required to pivot. Uh, I don't think that they are going to pivot when inflation is still high, unemployment is still low, and asset prices are still higher than they were in March of 2020. I mean, that's what you got to remember, right? Like m markets are down anywhere from 15 to 30 percent, you know, this year, but they're still up 30, 40, 50 percent from where they were two years ago, right? Right. So the fact that asset prices have come down a little bit, I don't think necessarily bothers the Fed. So I would agree. will the Fed pivot? The Fed will absolutely pivot because that's their job. The whole reason that central banks are in existence is to step in and save the system when it comes uh, under threat. But they're not necessarily put in position to, to save the market when it's not needed. Yeah. And, and for all those reasons I talked about earlier about him being embarrassed and they got inflation wrong and they need to protect their reputation, I think necessitates the crisis before they come back in. And so, you know, when I see markets the way they are up today, I understand why they're up and it makes sense to me why they're up, but I don't think it's right. I don't, I don't think the market's making the right decision. Right. I don't think that they, I don't think the Fed has already decided to pivot and they're gonna pivot next week. Now, if they do and I'm wrong, that'll be fine too, right? Like I'll just have to react to that and deal with it. Um, but well, I, I think but your, I, but your I reasoning think, again, is your reasoning yeah. is right. The timing could change, but at some point, yeah, it's, the, yeah, the, yeah exactly. Break. And it could exactly. break sooner than you think. It could break. It could break yeah. next next month, right? Like we could run out of diesel. Like, who knows, right? Yeah. So then it could easily it, it could happen in two weeks, right? right? Could wake up one morning and you know something happened, and now they have to go bail. You know, the mark. I mean, here's the amazing thing, right? I don't know if you were watching um, the markets yesterday, but after the close yesterday, Apple reported earnings and Amazon reported yeah. earnings. And the you know markets were down three or four percent in after hours, and now today they're up two or three percent. Yeah. So there's a seven point swing in less than 24 hours. I mean, markets are just really psycho right now, and I think 
anybody who has certainty in what's going to happen is, is a fool because nothing is certain right now. So I want, I want to jump back to where we were. So uh, I get it, man. Uh, timing is impossible. Yeah. But I think the trigger points are right. And could it does happen next month or early next year? We don't know. Um, but I want to just jump back to the last part, which is um, uh, which kind of shocked me, uh, is uh, another fiat system on the back end. And, yeah. and the reason why that uh, kind of shocks me is there's a theory. I forget the guy's name, what it's under. But it basically says that, uh, oh, it's like the va theory value of money or whatever, right? Where like, um, so like when Zimbabwe blows up their currency, they create a new currency that's pegged to the dollar again. And then they blow yeah. it up again, they repeg it to the dollar. So they have to create a new currency. It has to be pegged to something of real value. Yeah. Um, and the dollar was created based off of a peg to the gold yeah. value. So yeah. how do you create a new fiat currency that's not anchored to anything? Okay, so the way I would describe this is two things. Even if they don't peg the new fiat system to something, that doesn't mean that gold won't go to 5000 or $10,000. So I'm a huge gold bull long term. I think whatever the transition to a new system, I think we'll see gold be much, much higher than it is today. So, but that doesn't mean that it will be officially recognized as money. The other thing is it wouldn't shock me if they use gold as part of the new system or in some way use it to restore confidence in the short term. But I don't think we're going back to a, to a situation where we will have a standard gold standard yeah. and that is used as the global money and the whole world just you know agrees to it. Um, I think if anything was chosen that the whole world would accept, it would be gold. But I just don't think whoever wins this grand battle um, is going to do that. The other thing I would say is it doesn't have to make sense for something to last. And, and what I will use as an example is, um, you know, the Russian ruble after World War II, right? Um, the Russian ruble and the Russian of the whole Soviet economy um, from you know 1940s to the 1990s was nothing to be excited about, right? It didn't do a good job of protecting purchasing power. Their economy didn't thrive. Um, there was no free market uh, principles there that guided its value up or down. But yet it lasted for 50 years because the Communist Party, the Soviet Communist Party said, this is the way we're going to do it, right? This is the rule. And if you don't follow the rules, you end up in Siberia working in a labor camp for 40 years. Yeah. Um, and I, my fear is that that could happen again. Um, again, I don't want that to happen. That's not what I would choose to do. But the idea that we're going to have this big grand battle and then after that, we're going to have peace, love and harmony. I, I love the idea and I hope I, I hope that that happens, but I'm, I'm a little skeptical. Well, I'm rooting for peace, love, and harmony, but... <laughs> I am too, man. I'll, 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 we'll do it together. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, cool. Um, yeah, you know, uh, the, the Bitcoiners' hope is that um, it, it, uh, it places restraints, right? So um, if I was having a party at my house and I started kicking everybody out of my house party, um, I've lost control over them. They've gone and started their own party, yeah. and I no longer have control. And enough people opt out of... Uh, that's what happened with the fall of the USSR. Enough people opted out of sure. the economies, created black markets, parallel markets, and then the USSR lost control, which is why right. nations always impose capital controls at the very end. They have to keep people right. stuck. And that's why game. black markets have always existed, right? Yeah. So it's like if, yeah. a, if, if uh, and, and even we've seen Christine Lagarde talk about that, we have to close the exits, she says. And so uh, yeah. if enough people can get out of their system and into a new system that they can't control, then they just lose control they just there's no way to get it. now threat of a gun yeah. right they have monopoly on violence right. i suppose to your point and people would say don't don't underestimate the amount of violence they'd have uh, but i think that's that's the hope is that maybe there's a way that people can go get into a new system that works and uh there's no threat of violence but um we'll see <laughs> we'll yeah see um, yeah. well uh we'll wrap it up with that i know that was a long conversation i appreciate it uh I wanted to get into your uh, musical chair analogy, which I thought was great, but you have it on your Twitter, so people should just go check out your Twitter, um, which yeah. is still an anonymous account, kind of, by the way. Uh, uh, you know, we don't have your face or your name on there, but uh, uh, Santiago Capital, yeah. we'll make sure to link that in the show notes down below. Um, anything else that people should be aware of other than your Twitter? No, I think, you know, just uh, I, I do a number of these type of podcasts. I always enjoy talking to you. Um, you know, I've, I've talked about this stuff a lot, you know, at conferences, interviews, uh, podcasts. Um, if you go on Google or YouTube and you type in Santiago Capital or Dollar Milkshake, 
at this point, there is a lot of links that will come up. And um, on my, my pinned tweet on Twitter has like a little five minute summary that kind of explains it in more detail as well. But um, listen, I think the, the, the thing that I always tell people is number one, don't worry about being wrong because everybody's wrong. Yep. Um, nobody gets it always right. And the other thing is don't, there's a difference between certainty and conviction. It's yeah. totally fine to have conviction, but don't have certainty on anything because this is gonna get really crazy. And the, once you're certain about something, you know you're about ready to get hit in the head because nothing is certain. Yeah. Anyway, I'll just leave it at that. Yeah. All right, Brent. Thanks for, thanks for your time. Appreciate it. All right. Thanks, man. All right. That's a wrap. Hopefully you enjoyed that conversation with Brent Johnson of Santiago Capital. Check him out on Twitter. Always insightful stuff. Uh, man, we covered a lot. And hopefully, I really want you to take away a couple of things. One, there is no such thing as certainties. There's only probabilities. As he said, we have convictions and convictions are okay, but don't believe that things are certain. You need to be prepared for whatever's going to happen. Create your base case, set up your portfolio accordingly, and then always monitor the situation to understand when to pivot. Uh, anyway, I'd love to hear what you think. And that's what I got to your success. I'm out.